0: Welcome to another episode of Unburden Your Health. In today's episode, we will talk about palliative care. WHO has defined palliative care as an approach that improves the quality of life of patients that could be adults or children and their families who are facing problems associated with life-threatening illness. The goal of palliative care is the achievement of the best possible quality of life for patients and their families. The need for palliative care has never been greater. Non communicable diseases like cancer or cardiac illnesses are on the rise. At present in India, we have more than 30 lakh or 3 million patients with cancer at any given time. Of these, almost 75 to 80 percent come with advanced disease, and half of them die within a year. And yet, no more than 2% receive palliative care because of the paucity of services. To share more insights, I have called on Dr. Vidya, a well-respected physician in the field of palliative care as my guest for my show today. Dr. Vidya is a palliative care physician working at the Homi Baba Cancer Hospital and Research Center in Andhra Pradesh. She is privileged to be part of the inception of two socially relevant health-related areas, transfusion medicine and palliative care. She is also an honorary tutor for Cardiff University and is part of the national training program in palliative medicine. Vidya is a very dear friend and thank you Vidya for being part of my show today.
1: Thank you so much Sanjay. It is such a privilege to be here And of course, to talk about palliative care. It is, it's, we share a huge, long friendship. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've known you three-fourth of my life. And, uh, you know, uh, my first question always goes back to, you know, you are a pathologist just like me and you specialize in transfusion medicine. What was the motivation or the trigger for you to actually, you know, bring about this change in your path from going in from transfusion medicine and pathology to palliative care?
1: Uh, thank you, Sanjay, for that question, because I'm really grateful to transfusion medicine for this one reason that it brought me close to palliative care. So uh, like you are aware, when we were in Bombay, we had blood banks all around the corner. There were voluntary blood banks, there were voluntary donors. But when I came to Ashaka this was in 1993, there was no voluntary blood bank at all. So all the blood was coming from blood cellars and there was no concept of voluntary donation in itself. So that is when I met a gastroenterologist and a pathologist team and then I started working in the blood bank. And while, and we set up the first voluntary blood bank in the combined states of Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, which was together then. And working in transfusion medicine actually brought me close to chronic disease because we dealt with children with thalassemia, sickle cell anemia. We had a little group, we we made blood transfusion easy for these patients. And so we had a pool of donors. We had a pool of these patients. And then I saw the other side of chronic illness, because we had and this was a time when cancer chemotherapy was given. But there were no medications to control the side effects. There was no GCSF then. So patients just bled and the patients needed a lot of blood and blood products and dialysis patients. So when and Uh, HIV had just come in. And so we were seeing HIV, you know, donors with who were HIV positive. And so, you know, the counseling, the systems, all this brought me close to chronic disease. And I saw it for almost two decades. And then I had a conversation with uh, Jaideep one day, who's also one of our friends and with Sipla Palliative Care Center. And that was a trigger for me to start training in palliative medicine, because honestly, till then, even I was not aware of this specialty.
0: Right. I know many of us, you know, have had uh, some personal reason, uh, you know, which sort of pushes us into a particular decision. And you mentioned thalassemia. And, you know, I can narrate an incident of one of my first patients who used to come to me as a child, he was eight years old, and he would come to do his hemoglobin every three weeks because he needed blood transfusion and that also sort of uh, you know made me aware of the opportunities but also the challenges in voluntary blood donation so i think there is a lot of uh, commonality in you know what you know what i have seen and what what you have also seen but tell me this this journey uh, you know of palliative care how did it sort of start for you and where have you sort of taken it uh, for yourself and for the state you know and for your state and for the country
1: So very honestly, when I started palliative medicine, I never thought I would come this far because I started by reading. I started by learning first. I started by reading what it was about. I spoke to a very few handful who were in the field. And I did my first training in palliative medicine, which was a national fellowship from Calicut. It was a one year fellowship. And uh, I told myself, let me do the fellowship. And if it really interests me, maybe I'll go to Kerala and volunteer every year for 15 days. So that was how my journey started because I never dreamt that, you know, I would pursue it as a full-time profession. And then like sometimes the universe just conspires. And so uh, this was year 2012 and that was when I was finishing my first first, uh, fellowship. And suddenly I heard that there is a hospice which has started in the city. And it was St. Joseph's Hospice. So I just went there. They were just missionary sisters, you know. They had just started the hospice right then. 2012 was when the hospice started. And there I met Dr. N. S. Raju, who's a geriatrician. And uh, he had also done a course in palliative medicine and also interested in it. He was running a foundation for geriatric and palliative care. So it was like a turning point. And from that day, I started going there every day. I used to go there, spend a few hours, maybe two, three hours and whatever right. patients we had started seeing them. And then one thing followed the other, we started doing home care and suddenly I hear in 2014 that Tata Memorial is coming to Vishakhapatnam and they are starting an entire unit. And then I went to Tata Memorial, I trained there, I did a couple of other courses and I enrolled for the masters in 2015 through Cardiff University, which was a three year masters. and. It, when the hospital started, Medical Oncology OPD and Palliative Care OPD were the first two OPDs along with Preventive Oncology and Gynec Oncology OPD. These were the right. first three OPDs that started in the hospital and it started out of a tin shed. They were containers in which we okay. started our uh, our journey. Wow. So, this was in 2014. The hospital started in 2014, June, and palliative care OPD started in 2015. February, we had access to opioids in April 2015. Right. So, that was how the whole thing, just everything wow. came in together.
0: Wow, I, didn't, I didn't realize that it's been already a 10-year journey for you. So, amazing. Congratulations, Vidya, and thank you for doing what you're doing. But, you know, you mentioned the word hospice, and I think... I think from an audience perspective, maybe you can help us demystify these two words. There is palliative care and then there is hospice. Uh, And I know at this point of time, you know, a very dear friend of ours in the US is also in hospice care, Uh, but it will be good for you to explain, you know, the difference between palliative care and hospice.
1: All right, so if I can uh, talk about a little comparison so that it's easier for someone to understand. Uh, when you go in a car or when you when you are on a car journey through a very rough path you have a vehicle with four wheels but then when you have a good brakes you know when you have good brakes in the car and when you have good bags in the car when you when all your accessories are well set that's when your journey gets smooth otherwise you just can't drive something which has a vehicle and four wheels so the journey of chronic disease is always uh, starts with a lot of emotion because it starts with too many things that are happening at one time. You're being told that you you just have been diagnosed with something. you're also being told that this is incurable. you are being told that you know these you have these many number of treatments to go through. So the start of the journey is tough and along that road you're going to go through multiple treatments, multiple symptoms, mm-hmm. a lot of levels of stress. And then one day, you know that this is incurable, something you knew, but now that there is no more disease-directed therapy. So palliative care starts at inception. Palliative care can be integrated into care in any chronic disease, call it renal disease, call it neurological cancer, of course, because that's been the catalyst for palliative care. But along this journey, we work in tandem with the primary physician. And when we talk about hospice, it comes more towards end of life because that time the hospital setting, the needs of the patient are different. And so we try to blend it into end of life care. So essentially hospice care is a part of palliative care.
0: Right, right. So what I understand is that palliative care, you can still have curative Uh, therapies along with improving the quality of life but i think in hospice uh, it's more resigned to maybe the last six months of life where you are i think the patient and the physicians are aware or the families are aware that cure is not possible and it is just you know to give a comfortable end of life would that be a right way to summarize it
1: uh, yes, you're true, because, and again, it's different in different countries. So in the US, it's because it's insurance driven a lot of this. So hospice care, essentially, they have a date. They right. say, you know, like six months, one year. So they, they do that. Uh, in Europe, in, uh, in those systems, you have hospices, you have home-based care, and then you have care within the hospitals. Now, in our setting, we have such a supreme lack of resources, but that right. we do use hospice care even intermittently for patients in the sense of course we know that the disease is incurable but they are on treatment but suppose they need admission there are times when hospices do take in patients so it's it also provides what we call as respite care and supportive care so but essentially like what you said hospice care comes towards the end of life end of life yeah.
0: and i mean there's another word uh, that is holistic care is that the same is that Similar to palliative and hospice care or is that
1: different? Uh, so holistic care is a practice of holistic uh, care in palliative care. It's it's emphasized. But honestly, Sanjay, I don't think holistic care should be, uh, you know, separate from what we, uh, from patient care. Because when right. we talk of holistic care and the way we train, we train in four different areas. In the sense, the physical aspect, the psychological right. aspect, the emotional the social and the spiritual. So all of these domains are essential in the practice of palliative medicine. So if I could just give you an example, uh, a person can have a disease called cancer. But what that person is going through is what we call as the illness experience. That is because, uh, you know, a disease you can name. But the illness experience is something that is unique to the individual who's going through it and not just the individual, but also the family. Sure. So suppose you have a young adult who is diagnosed with a term- with a cancer and he's going to go through therapy. You're suddenly going to cut him off from friends, from his regular routine. He is going to be away from all that. There are, there yeah. are going to be self-image issues. There is going to be the whole family whose schedule now centers around this Young person right? and of course the financial constraints and a huge part of palliative care is also addressing spiritual distress. So, uh, spiritual distress is both religion and it need not be religion. So, so, it is you know losing your connectedness, losing your personhood. So, these right. are all of these issues are what we deal with in palliative care. Which I think everybody in medicine should be doing actually but uh, the folk, we, we actually do this.
0: So there is a significant contribution from the, if I were to call it the non-medical side of, yeah. uh, you know, a doctor-patient interaction, which is spiritual, emotional, social, as you said, uh, you know, which, which, which sort of uh, dovetails along with the medicine or the medical side of it, you know, so.
1: Absolutely, and because... All of us in palliative medicine work with multidisciplinary teams. Of course, sometimes we have to wear all the hats, but uh right. that's that's done only because of lack of resources, but otherwise like how we all of us now we all have multidisciplinary teams in any specialist palliative care unit. So when I talk of a multidisciplinary team, even our right. history taking is, you know, in all these domains and so we have a social worker, we have a okay. psychologist, and then we have a nurse, we have the doctor, these all of whom are integrated and we all work in tandem together.
0: I remember, I think, uh, when I've recommended a couple of patients to you, uh, I think a large part of your initial interaction has been very, very emotional support, uh, more psychological in nature than getting to the medical side of it. And I see that, you know, that perhaps is a huge facet in, you know, this whole concept of palliative or holistic care i can you know i could sense that and it's it's so amply clear today that you know it's it's such a 360 degree approach uh, for the patient but i think also the family i guess you know the family interaction probably plays a, a significant role. role as well
1: yes so the definition of palliative care also includes the caregiver support which is very very important because Uh, who is finally a caregiver Sanjay I can be a caregiver tomorrow if I have someone in my family who's ailing so a caregiver is not a unique person it's anybody who has suddenly become a caregiver overnight because of what has happened and so caregiver support because that caregiver suddenly you sit on a desk and you're giving that caregiver a hundred instructions you know get the block slides from here therapy starts tomorrow make sure this is done so and they are also working and living their life while caregiving so that is the reason why we always say look at the patient behind the the person behind the patient right. which is still very important Absolutely. because supporting the caregiver and not just through the disease we support caregivers even during bereavement even after the patient dies
0: sure. we
1: still make a bereavement call uh, if there are children whose needs, uh, you know, social worker needs are there, schooling is there, or if there is anything that we need to address, right. uh, you know, we we look into that too.
0: So uh, you mentioned right in the beginning that um, you know uh, the access to palliative care is fairly less, or it's you know it's it's not enough. Uh, and also, I was reading uh, that you know most people. Uh, take up palliative care very late in their illness. Uh, So how do we create more awareness and how does one assess the need to get palliative care, you know, so, you know, families or individuals, how do they know this whole concept of palliative care exists? There's this whole gap between demand and supply that you spoke about. And how do we encourage people that, you know, how do they assess when is the right time to actually put their hand up and say, I think, I'm a candidate or the family says we are a candidate for palliative care. What's been your experience in that?
1: All right, Sanjay, there are two parts to this. One is what we call as advocacy. And the second is sensitizing the medical fraternity. Because advocacy is in the community. So that is why a lot of palliative care programs are volunteer driven. Because first, the community has to know that there's something like this that exists. Because most of the times what happens is, Mm -hmm. They are told, uh, which is a line which we train our physicians or whomever we train, we tell them, never tell a patient, don't come back again and there is nothing more to do. Because there is always something to do. So if the patient does not understand this, if they do not know that we have enough medication to relieve pain, we have enough medication to address dyspnea, we have enough medications to deal with all the symptoms, you don't need to live with a foul-smelling wound. We have ways and means to to do a proper dressing and for you to be able to live comfortably in society. So unless they know that, they're never going to come forth and ask. So that is why advocacy, and I think programs like yours will do both. It will sensitize the medical fraternity as well as touch the community. So unless I know that this exists for me and I'm entitled to it, I'm never going to ask for it. I'm never going to look for it that is okay. the first step so that is why advocacy is so important right from schools colleges irrespective of whether you're doing medicine or not but having said that what has been happening is that because it's become so volunteer driven people think that palliative care is just about holding someone's hand and sitting and talking to them but when you do not have good physical control over, I mean, over, over the symptoms, if your pain is uncontrolled, if your breathlessness is uncontrolled, then you are never going to be comfortable. So a huge chunk of palliative medicine is also the practice of evidence-based medicine. So I think that is what we are trying very hard as a community to put across, and even to physicians. Like you have, you know, a particular way of to dose your medication, your chemotherapy, but why is it that when it comes to analgesics, you just scribble something and send, you know, you you don't really put your mind and effort in that. So that is where the palliative care physician will come in. And having, you also asked me, what are the triggers for palliative care referrals? So ideally, in an ideal world, the trigger for referral is when you are diagnosed with a condition that is incurable. But having said that, we all know that the demand supply, uh, you know, Gap is so huge that it's almost next to right. impossible. So what we talk about is different levels of palliative care. We talk about generalist palliative care, which every physician should be trained. So whether I'm right. a neurologist, nephrologist, oncologist, I should have basic symptom control guidelines to follow. And right. when I know that my patient's symptoms are not getting control, I should have the generosity of spirit to refer. You know, and sure, that's where sure. integrated practice comes in. So at our institute, we have early palliative care. So our patients come to us really early. But I know that in 90% of, you know, hospitals, specialties across the country, this doesn't happen. And it's sad because right. if I was a patient, I would want it. So why wouldn't I do it for my patient? So I think it's, right, it's right. very important that we integrate palliative care early because only then the sure. benefit of palliative care Uh, you know, actually reaches the patient and family.
0: Yeah, I think uh, the objective of, you know, podcasts like this is basically to uh, make people aware of the various burden that our healthcare system faces. And I think, uh, you know, chronic disorders, incurable conditions, end of life, these are all, you know, burdens on our society. And we hope that, you know, because of the kind of work that you and your team are doing, more and more people become aware and take advantage of that. You mentioned, you know, just now you mentioned two symptoms and that sort of stuck with me, pain and breathlessness. Now, are these the two most common reasons why people, you know, opt for palliative care?
1: Uh, Yes, we, if you ask us about symptom control, definitely pain tops the list and also breathlessness. Because they are very, very, uh, like the quality of life of the patient is significantly impaired because of these two symptoms. And more than that, right. both of these symptoms, we need opioids to manage them most of the time. In pain, okay. at least cancer pain, the gold standard is right. opioids. And right. our doctors, even we, Sanjay, did not train in the use of opioids. If, if we look back right. into our pharmacology books, we only learned about respiratory depression in opioids. We did not learn anything more than that, which is sad. We all came out, we took our exams and we we all had case presentations and mitral stenosis, but we were never asked, how are you going to deal with pain? We were never taught how to communicate with a patient. So these are huge lacunae in our medical system. So pain does top the list and breathlessness after that. And most importantly, we require opioids for this. And even today, access to opioids for licit use in our country is tough. It's really really difficult and we are again working in a lot of palliative care physicians are working even with the community but not just with the community but with also the authorities to make this simpler but there's always a but there.
0: So um, are cancer and cardiorespiratory conditions the two most common um, sort of underlying disease pathologies that are the trigger for seeking palliative care?
1: Cancer always has been. Like I said, it has been the catalyst okay. and cancer is always right there on the list. But I think right. with COVID in the last two years, uh, the spectrum for respiratory palliative care has really increased in the sense a lot of respiratory care physicians are now integrating palliative care. In fact, we are we have trained a lot of pulmonologists and we have a lot of common training programs in pulmonology and palliative medicine. So, that is an area which, where you know, uh, there is a kind of integration happening, at least in some of the metros and in some of the centers. Right. But having said that, neuropalliative care is another area of interest because uh, right. in neurology we have a lot of symptoms which are the are probably some of the most difficult to deal with. So you have Alzheimer's, you have Parkinson's, you have dementia, and you right. have trauma. You you have very very young people who are. You know paraplegics who are quadriplegics so their okay. mental faculties are fine but then uh, so these are the areas and actually in Kerala you see a lot of them because they climb up on uh, coconut trees you know and so they have falls okay. so we we used to see in our home care we used to see a lot of youngsters who are just lying down and you know because they are paralyzed so neuropalliative care and now right. recently We've had a lot of collaboration with UK and with the university in Karnataka, with Manipal University, with Karunashraya, and in the national faculty, and along with our IPC on ICU palliative care. So because okay. that's again a special area of interest because a lot of end-of-life care hovers in ICUs, so you know, ICU palliative care. Sure. So it's it's kind of uh, growing, you know, within the specialty.
0: Right. How many palliative care physicians or facilities would there be in India and what, according to you, is the need in in terms of that number?
1: I think whatever you need to do, you need to multiply it in thousands. I, I, I can't even sure. put a number to that. If sure. you actually look at a trained program, Sanjay, in 2012 was when we started the first MD in palliative medicine.
0: Okay. So if
1: you look at it, you know, so only Tata Memorial started it then.
0: Right. Then
1: slowly, All India Institute GCRI in Karnataka, now Manipal. This year, DNB has opened up. Okay. So right now we are still in two digits, you know, fig, two right. digit figures in the country. When right. you talk about, you know, say two people joining in every year in over three years, so six of them. So you slowly start multiplying it. This year we've got about three, four institutes in Bangalore and in Hyderabad and other places which have started DNB programs in Delhi. And so I would say the next decade. We should be hopeful to have more people and these people should stay and join institutes and yeah. work towards palliative care. So that also is... Uh... No, but
0: it's great to see that there are a lot of uh, postgraduate programs in palliative yes. care and there are people who are seeking out to join these courses, right? Oh,
1: yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because uh, geriatric care and palliative care both are slowly becoming, you know, the need of the hour. Uh, we, we ourselves are going to need it. So... Like yes. one of our teachers says, yes. you know, she says you need to create the world you want to die in. So I said,
0: <laughs> very is... nicely put. Very nicely yeah, put. Yeah. In fact, recently, uh, someone I know in Mumbai, she has been a dentist and then an entrepreneur who was running, uh, you know, a chain of diagnostic clinics. sent me a, a message that I have moved out of that and now I'm into full time into palliative care. And you know, I know you have another few friends in Mumbai. Yeah who yeah. you said were practicing pulmonary medicine have moved into palliative care. So I think we're seeing a lot of people, you know, yeah. moving from their core speciality into palliative care. I guess the gratification of being part of this system, perhaps, is, is that a big pull factor for people like you and others?
1: Uh, I would say it's a privilege because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, to be with someone uh, during their most vulnerable state is is something for which we have to be grateful. I always say that we give less than we receive and that is what I've always seen with every one of our patients because these are very special moments like you are just with somebody you are talking to them and you know they open up a world to you and within the next few minutes they are no more. So, It is. And we have had, we we see this so regularly and on a continuous basis that after every single episode you have, when we self-reflect, which is again a very important part of palliative care, we always think how privileged we are and how grateful we should be that you were able to help someone when they needed, you know, probably when they needed us.
0: Absolutely. So, it's... Tell me uh, how much of palliative care is done in institutions, and how much of that is done at home. I know that there is a fair mm. amount of palliative care that can be managed at home. So oh, yes. maybe your experience and your your thoughts, maybe to help you know the audience understand that it's not just about institutions, but it's also palliative care at home.
1: Uh, very true. So uh, where does someone like to be? If you if you if each one of us likes to think, where would I want to be? You know. I think most of us, for most of us, our favorite place would be home. Of course, I'm not talking about, you know, of course, all of us like to travel. I'm not looking at it from that way. But suppose there is a time when, you know, where where is your most comfortable place, which is home? So when you are ailing, when you are sick, when you have a disease that doesn't let you move around the way, you, when your quality of life is coming down day by day, that is the place where you want to be looked after. And that is also the place which is most comfortable for families to look after you because, you know, the whole, uh, their life is also going on and along with it, they're looking after the patient. So both of them, both of it happens simultaneously. And more importantly, we can use the hospital resources for something active that you need to be, which is a system of justice in ethics, right? So you use the hospital system, the hospital stuff for what? Uh, you know, the, the hospital is trained differently and the nurses are trained differently there. Sure. So when we talk about home care, in fact, recently, uh, we have a grant with the Sipla Foundation, which is providing a, a grant to many institutions around the country. So we've written a project at Baba, which is called as Integrated Hospital-Based Continuity of Care. Okay. So the key uh, thing, and that's what I have been trying from day one, is continuity of care. Which means non abandonment for the patient. So that, you know, whether you're taking treatment within the hospital, whether there is no more disease directed therapy left, we look after you till you live. And so, when, so we have a triage system in our, uh, you know, in the hospital. So when we know that the performance status is dipping, the symptom control is increasing, then at that point, we start providing them with home care. So we actually have teams that's, again, a multidisciplinary team. So a doctor, nurse, and a social worker or a doctor, nurse, therapist, they visit patients at home and look after their needs. And, uh, you know, in Kerala, this is very extensive. In Hyderabad, it's very extensive. Delhi has CAN support. Bombay has PAL care, a lot of teams. So a lot of places, we do have home care teams, which reach out to patients in their homes and, you know, Uh, probably, you know, reduce their burden significantly. So home care is an integral part of palliative care. And we also provide end-of-life care at home
0: when needed. So, you know, so then... Who who takes this decision, you know, whether the patient should be at home or should be in the hospital? Is it a joint decision between the palliative care team and the family? Or is it the primary physician who decides, the patient decides? In your experience... know what's the role that you know there are four elements there's the individual there is a physician there's a family and then there's a palliative care team how is this decision arrived at should it be at home should it be at an institution and when should they shift from one to the other
1: all right so uh what you were asking me is what we call as shared decision making so shared decision making and an advanced care plan starts early in palliative care so when okay. that's the reason of early palliative care you you see the patient through the trajectory when you know that now things are changing you have to start asking these questions so we usually have family meetings and uh, like Thank in you. cancer hospitals we have tumor boards we have joint clinics every day and more importantly towards end of life we have what we call as family meetings ICUs hold family meetings so in these family meetings who is present is the primary care physician, the palliative care physician, the caregiver, the patient and whoever is important to them. So that's where we make okay. all these plans and we chart the you know, plan for the particular patient. We call that a comprehensive care plan in which right. anticipatory care, uh, advanced care planning, all of these are what we call as goals of care. So all our case sheets usually have this on it, a comprehensive okay. care plan for okay. a particular patient.
0: Okay. And you mentioned earlier on that, you know, uh, it's very important that every doctor understands the importance of palliative care. So is there a plan where the current, you know, family physician, uh, you know, are trying to get inculcated into this whole practice of palliative care?
1: We do conduct a lot of training programs and we do have people who attend. We do have family physicians who are interested, but uh, of course the gap is too wide so the only way i can think that we can take this forward is to include it in our undergraduate curriculum so when you okay. when you learn medicine and when you learn about palliative medicine while doing medicine and when you learn to communicate then when you learn to uh, you know treat pain when you learn holistic care when you learn all of that then it's going to stay with you for life so True. i am hoping that the new you know you have the 80com 8com module which is attitude oh. ethics and communication So, you have this new module which has been introduced and I hope it will bring about some kind of, you know, change. Yeah, the way I look
0: at it, Vidya, that, uh, you know, we are trying to work towards improving life expectancy. You know, our diagnostic services are able to pick up conditions at an earlier stage. We want to improve, you know, the longevity. But if we can sort of, if we don't improve the quality of life, then I think we we are only looking at it you know, the glass sort of half full and not a complete glass. I think, you know, I think so, so what you are trying to say is that, you know, while we improve life expectancy, while we improve the longevity, we have to make sure that all of us are trained on how to also improve the quality of life. I think that's very important. And that's a great, you know, takeaway kind of a message that you're sharing. Uh, You know, you mentioned about opioids. Uh, Are they the sort of mainstay of, a treatment or can you just maybe elaborate a little more on what all goes into this whole you know the treatment during palliative care
1: so um opioids are the gold standard for cancer pain in and you can't it's it's hard to treat cancer pain without opioids having said that it's not like right. every patient needs opioids but the patient who needs it needs it so that's yeah. how opi- and Another misconception that we've grown up with or another misconception that we, you know, which we believe and even physicians believe is that, uh, you know, oh, this patient is dying, Uh, give him morphine now. So that's, that's, that's completely illogical because morphine or opioids are given for pain when the patient needs it. And this can be well at the beginning of the disease, it can be during treatment, it can be after treatment, because all of it depends on the pain. And so we have a stepladder where, uh, you know, our mainstay is paracetamol, which is the first drug on the stepladder. We use paracetamol as the first drug for cancer pain, along with NSAIDs, which we use only in specific conditions. And yeah. then we have the step two and step three opioids, which are, you know, tromadol and antipentadol, and of course, morphine, methadone, and fentanyl, which is available in our countries. So, uh, and most important is morphine is a very different drug because it's not a drug where you tell the patient, take this and this is the dose. It doesn't work. You need yeah. to train before you prescribe. You need just as much as you have the power, you have a responsibility to use it well and to train the patient too because the patient needs to step up the medication along with the pain. There is no ceiling effect for morphine. And so because of that, training the caregiver, the patient, you know, uh, is also very important. So we spend a significant amount of time and then how do you deal with the side effects? And usually in my training sessions, that's one thing I always ask, you know, whoever is there, that if you're gonna hold a glass of water, if you're gonna stretch out your hand and hold a glass of water, is that painful? Everybody says no. I said, absolutely. But when you're going to do that 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it is painful. So we have to understand as physicians that chronic pain needs constant medication. This is not a fracture which is going to heal. This is going to be. So the key is in understanding dealing with chronic pain, which is why even if you're a well-trained physician, you need to retrain. And you need to unlearn sure. things that you've learned.
0: Sure. sure. And uh, I guess, as you mentioned, side effects. You know, side effects like vomiting or or diarrhea, nausea. These would be very common side effects that you probably face on a regular basis. Actually,
1: we face yes, we do face nausea, but that's 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 something that'll go away in a couple of days. But constipation. That is the worst side effect of opioids, and so constipation is is will never go away. But we train our patients and then they they do it so well we have children on opioids we have we have babies on opioids we have toddlers on opioids we have adolescents on opioids and i'm sure across palliative care centers in our country in our setting because we still use it only for cancer pain we hardly ever come across you know misuse or diversion because we we train them we are with the family and when they i literally tell my patients this is like gold you know, and that's, though it's it's one of the cheapest drugs available. And then right. they understand. When they take it and when they see the relief, they so, respect it so much.
0: Understood. And you mentioned children. I mean, so do you get a lot of uh, young oh, yes. patients for palliative yes. care?
1: Yes. We, we get all ages. We get them from months. We get them from, you know, babies under a year. We get little toddlers. You get school-going children. You will get adolescents and young adults. So the entire spectrum and pediatric palliative care is now growing in our country. There is a good hub at Telangana which is in Hyderabad and right. then of course in Maharashtra at Tata Memorial where Dr. Mary started it and then in care. So you do have good hubs for pediatric palliative care but they are woefully inadequate. And it's sad because when we talk about cancer in our country, uh you know pediatric cancers. I'm sure many hospitals open the doors and even you know put the children through various schemes so that it makes it easier for the child to take treatment. But, uh, but in spite of that, parents cannot leave their work because they are all they are very young when they have a baby, so many of right. them, you know, uh, they just can't even take treatment. So, we do have a lot of pediatric wow. uh, and uh, not just cancer, we have many other conditions which merit palliative care in in, in children and uh, thalassemia is one of them and right. so so many other conditions you have hematological you have neurological you have cystic fibrosis you have so many other things that you know if you if you look in which need sure. palliative care.
0: Sure so, so, I didn't know that I mean but you know one would think that most of the patients would be elderly or geriatric patients mm-hmm. but you know I th- I guess it's expanding to the entire life expectancy or the lifespan of an individual you know from newborns to very old. But again I think you know the kind of work that you and your team are doing is so commendable and I just compliment you for doing this and thank you for doing this uh, you know for helping sort of bring down this burden that we have on the healthcare ecosystem. So in all this uh, you know this is such a tough job that you do how do you look after yourself uh, what are you doing to keep yourself still healthy, physically, mentally, emotionally? What are you doing to unburden your own health and, you know, make sure that you are the fittest so that you can make sure you continue doing the good work that you are doing?
1: Uh, you know what, Sanjay, it's it's like, uh, it, it, we have this kind of teamwork every, every time when we see a patient or, you know, weekly we have team meetings. I think every palliative care center has it. And many of us have really good friends who work in palliative care so uh you know the understanding becomes a lot easier so suppose i'm going through a difficult phase i have seen you know one of my adolescents have just died or one of my patients i've just lost somebody whom i have seen for a few years or maybe a few months but all of us go through these phases so we we talk about it we in a week we also have team meetings where we sit and talk about it like art between the psychologists, between the physiotherapist, all of us. You know, music helps because right now in my team, there are two of them who will play an instrument. They carry it and they put it in their car and then they bring it and then they'll play some music. And right. then we talk, we reminisce, we write. A lot of us write. There are a lot of them who are poets. There are a lot of them who write blogs. There are a lot who write. So we we unburden in, in various ways because... Finally, it is also emotionally, uh, it affects you. But at every point, when I'm asked, do you feel depressed? That's one thing I never do, because I always feel that, you know, at least we are in a position to be able to do this. What if that patient right. could not have got that care? That is the thought which right. depresses me. So uh, right. that's why I think for the future, you need to create a world where you know, there are a lot of palliative care leaders where it's integrated into our system so seamlessly that you don't, you know, need to look for palliative care physicians. It flows as a continuum. Yes.
0: I think that word that you mentioned, continuum of care, I think that that perhaps is the biggest takeaway for me that, you know, we need to make sure that palliative care, holistic care, hospice, or whatever you call it, is an integrated part of the healthcare ecosystem and that continuum of care is not something which we have to look out for but it's naturally available to us
1: it, it, it should be our responsibility
0: you know i, I think it is so before we end your last maybe a message you know to the audience as to you know your experience and what is the the future that you want to see in palliative care in our country
1: well, my message to everyone is just Google it for a start and just read about it. And okay. if you have a palliative care center, right. then just visit it. You know, you could be a volunteer. You could you could talk about it. You could have a meeting. But you know, it doesn't matter. You're a management graduate. You could have a meeting there and talk about it. Uh, you need multiple skills. So I think anyone can be part of this, uh, you know, a part of this advocacy that we have and another thing is to all the medical practitioners i would just say that this is evidence based medicine so it is up to us to strengthen our md programs and to you know to ensure that the mds who come out of palliative medicine be given a good you know good openings in the corporate setups in every hospital we should make end of life care nabh mandatory so which, which kind of strengthens the whole system, because it's not just coming from below up, but it has to come from above down too. Because only when, and I feel sad, a lot of our politicians, a lot of our celebrities die in ICUs, whereas it need not happen. You know, when you look at it abroad, the, right. it's exactly the opposite. They die in the comfort of their homes. So care has sure. to percolate from the top. And as far as cancer care goes, there is one thing that's very close to my heart that is What we call as prevention, early detection, and palliation. So when we go into the community, you know, the same set of social workers can actually help in prevention, early detection, and palliation. And so what we are trying to do is when we try to prevent something, you're automatically reducing the disease burden. So working on all these fronts is is something which I would like to work more on in the future.
0: So no, thank you, Vidya. Thank you for you know enlightening us. Thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. Thank you for you know being there when people need you the most. And you know I'm I'm sure when people listen to this podcast, uh, you know they will you know I hope they listen and share this with as many people as they can and create awareness that this is not a special aspect of medicine. This is an essential, integral part of medicine. Thank you again, Vidya. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Sanjay to for this opportunity and i really really hope that we can make compassion contagious through palliative medicine thank you so much
0: absolutely and that's a wrap for our episode today thank you so much for listening new episodes are out every alternate tuesday if you like this episode don't forget to subscribe to our show you can listen to our show on all major podcasting platforms like Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and wherever you listen to your podcast form. If you are an Apple or an iOS user, you can share your ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app. If you have any questions related to health, or would like to share your feedback, you can reach me on my social media handles at Dr. Sanjay Arora on LinkedIn and Facebook, and doctor underscore Sanjay Arora on Instagram.